Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you, Robert? Today, it feels very exciting because we are actually outdoors yes. in the British countryside. Yes, you can feel the wind, you we can have, hear the wind. We have come on a, an art adventure. Yeah. We actually we've got, come on a school trip, Rob, more or less. It feels like we've come on a school that. trip again. God, what, what a joy to be able to travel. Like, I, I came all the way. Um, BMW were very kind and sent us cars and mm. we, we came in these beautiful um, BMW hybrid cars. And, like, you had a pillow in yours. Honestly, I slept so well in the car. It was a three-hour journey from Margate maybe a bit more but um, the, the pillow behind my head was just like extraordinary I was like literally like luxury but you were meant to enjoy the experience but you slept through it I know but no I didn't actually the whole thing I did see a bit of the countryside oh you did um, yeah which was so beautiful it was like rolling hills and I just thought I thought it was a how, dead end how beautiful yeah, there was a town we went that was a dead end there was a wrong turn at one point but that's how, not BMW's fault though that was no it was, it was just a scenic route but the thing is like how amazing is the UK as well like all the green trees and the green yeah. rolling hills it was just so exciting but now we can take a trip and we got taken on this trip by BMW who are celebrating 50 years of cultural engagement. I know, honestly, BMW have committed themselves for 50 years to supporting artists. It started out with Gerhard Richter, oh, yeah. who they commissioned to make three paintings, which is actually still in their headquarters in Munich. Yeah. And then they've done amazing projects over the years. They've done all these art cars, which oh I've God. seen. They were in a car park in Shoreditch a few years back. In 2012, 2012. during London 2012. I, I actually went back. to it because it was really close to my old gallery. Yeah. And they, they had an exhibition of all these cars and it's people from like Warhol, Roy Lichtenstein, yeah, like Frank Stella, yes, it was Jenny Holtz, Calder, Calder, yes, they're extraordinary. Yes. So if you've never heard of these cars, people go on to Google and check them out. Yeah, they the are extraordinary. Yeah, well, they've always had a passion for creativity, and that's a key to their company and to all their car designers. So they feel there's an alignment with art and designing their cars, and that for them is really exciting. So they said to us, "Where do you want to go?" And we yeah. said, "Well, where else is there to go but Bruton in Somerset?" Yeah. And where have we come to, Rob? We have come to one of our favourite places to visit, which is Hauser & Worth Bruton in Somerset. And it is the most extraordinary um, you know, a, a place to visit. It's a bit like what BMW have done with innovation and um, you know, a commitment to artists. They have literally taken over a huge site. It's yeah. an old farm that's yeah. been derelict for a long time. It's like 70 years, I think, it was derelict for. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And they've renovated it so carefully and respectfully and in a very minimal way, in a way. But they've created these incredible, um, exhibition spaces and we first came here just before Talk Art ever was created so in um, June or July 2018 yeah. we came to the Calder um, exhibition here yeah. and you did a pin drop talk didn't you? I did in, in the Radich Pavilion which we will talk about a bit more later which is at the end of this amazing garden that they have here and uh, I was involved in pin drop and I read a short story here and it was a first experience of House and Worth in Somerset and it was amazing so, and we but, stayed didn't we in the same place we stayed this time in the, in the town yeah. just opposite the chapel restaurant we were yeah. in last night and um, and we were with Simon Oldfield and our friend Louise and we just had like such a great trip. It was trip. amazing. Well we're back here now for another show by an incredible artist called Henry Taylor. Uh, we're going to talk a bit more about him but while we're here we've just arrived and there is some, I don't, you can hear the wind obviously but there is a water feature which we're going to go and talk about which is the most incredible thing but basically what we're saying is now you can make trips, make the trip. BMW brought us here but you should definitely take a drive out because it is a trip to this space but it is definitely worth coming to because it's absolutely Absolutely beautiful. 
Henry Taylor's exhibition runs until the 6th of June, but the water feature sculpture public work that we are currently standing in front of is here until September. And it's also outdoors, so it's a wonderful work to come visit because you can um, experience it with the family. It's the kind of work that kids are going to love, you know, grandparents are going to love, young people are going to love. It's yeah. amazing, as well as adults, obviously, because it's, it's an amazing sculpture. Yes, yeah, by an artist called Nicole Eisenman, who is uh, recently signed to Hauser & Worth. She's incredible. It's called Fountain 2017, and it's five kind of genderless bronze nude figures and they they're standing around they're very serene idyllic one of them's got like water features coming out of their legs that look like they've got really hairy legs the other one's got like a can of soda resting yeah it's so on brilliant belly. and it's got water pouring out like a water feature you can probably hear it hang on oh they, people are going to fall asleep <laughs> <There you go. laughs> Very idyllic and serene, but it's very the, the work with Nicole Eisman is very layered and very uh, surreal at times. But it really deals with uh, gender and figuration and society. But this is uh, amazing. And also, she was best known for her paintings. But I saw her sculptures at the Whitney um, Biennale uh, Biennial um, about two years ago in New York. And I remember going out onto the terrace outdoors and seeing this giant sculpture with like yeah. smoke and like yeah. all kinds of elements. And it was just an amazing installation. Yeah. And I think you know this this work right now is a really great one to see because you know we've all been separated from each other and here are um you know five figures yeah. all laying around hanging out you know pondering the world there's a thinker um, yeah, like Rodin's thinker yeah, yeah. But this was from the show called where i was it shall be which was in 2020 at Housingworth in somerset and, and this- also it was part of the Munster um sculpture park wasn't it like yeah. the kind of when they have the amazing public uh exhibition in a way it's like yeah. an open thing for the whole of Munster yeah um which is really incredible so that was p- it was part of that as well so it's traveled but what Nicole said is that she's very happy for kids to come and hang off it and yes. jump in the water and stuff I don't know how much the uh, House and Worth people are doing <laughs> that and we can't get a few screw faces but actually kids come jump do we, the artist welcomes it. Um, right, let's go inside. Yes. We're going to go in and see the Henry Taylor exhibition. Yeah, so we're walking into this old, uh, the farmhouse building, which, yeah, as we said, was derelict for several decades and got uh, renovated to the most beautiful uh, building. I mean, it's the most incredible space. So we're going to go into the entrance. But yeah, that was in the garden outside, wasn't it? And the it? amazing thing about this exhibition space is, because it did used to be a kind of working farm a long, long time ago, um, one of the exhibition spaces is even called the pigsty. You know, so they all have these amazing titles. Yeah. And the restoration the work here is just amazing with the architect they work with. Who are we going to meet now? It's extraordinary. So we are now going to meet our friend who... Um, you and you, you guys knew each other for a long time now. No, we met the last time I was here. Oh, okay. Struck I up thought, a firm friendship you over like French you bulldogs. Knew each other before. Yes, That's hilarious. French bulldogs always bond people. Anyone who's a Frenchy owner recognises another That's Frenchy right. owner. We are here with Daya Vanagan, and we have just walked into the Henry Taylor exhibition. So this first room is really, really beautiful because it's got light, natural light pouring in through the windows. Yeah, architecturally, it was called the the threshing room. So this is where they kind of had all the crops and they threshed them out I guess is <laughs> I don't know what that actually entails but I think it's taking off like bits of the plant. husk uh, yeah something like that husking them we can ask we can ask but there's these huge barn doors that have then been like changed over with huge glass in them but I think this building was listed so there wasn't a lot they could do uh, like on the outside walls but the inside they've been able to turn this space into a really incredible exhibition one of the things I love about it is the the open roof as well because they have the kind of barn you know the, the roof of the barn it goes all the way up and it's it's such a beautiful beautiful room to sort of enter into because it's so grand but also quite intimate still and and it really does have this beautiful natural light and you know in the summer here particularly like this summer if you can get down here they've got an 
another exhibition opening on the 25th of June. And, you know, it's going to be an amazing place to visit, even just architecturally, let alone the world-class art. Mm. It's um, got a lovely atmosphere and we are joined by Daya. Hi, huh? Daya. Hi. How, how are you today? I'm great. It's so good to have you guys back. Thank you very much. So you're from Canada originally, but you found yourself in Somerset and you are the director of the House and Worth Somerset. Well, I'm one of the directors. So, you know, it's a great team effort here. There's, you know, lots of collaboration, lots of people working on all aspects of the shows and the exhibitions and events. So, so yeah. How long have you been here? I've been here actually for almost five years. Incredible. So we're, we have just walked into the Henry Taylor exhibition and was wondering if you could talk our listeners and us through what we're seeing in front of us. Of course, of course. Um, well, I guess just to kind of give you a bit of background about Henry Taylor, we started representing him in January 2020, and he's this incredible artist based in LA. He really creates work from his own language, drawing upon archival and immediate imagery through reference material and memory. So really, I guess his work interrogates the human condition, social movements, and political structures. Right. Um, this is his first UK uh, major solo exhibition, and this is the first exhibition with the gallery that we've had. Um, and one other thing to mention before we start talking about the work is that this actually uh, exhibition came out of a residency that he did with us, um, really surprisingly through the pandemic um, and through lockdown. Um, the way that he works, we had to, you know, he had to come over to complete the work. So he was with us sort of throughout January in horrible weather. So um, lockdown, <laughs> cold. I think at one point you had snow. Yeah. And he's not able to see anyone. And anyone who knows Henry Taylor's work and knows Henry Taylor as a person he is someone who is very social. He loves meeting people, he loves talking to people, loves studio visitors. So, and also that... a lot of the paintings sort of come out of that, don't they? Yeah, out of those social interactions. He's like, yeah. stay still, I'm going to paint you, I'm yeah. going to draw you. So what, what was that, what was he, his response to kind of being locked down in Somerset in the winter on his own? Oh my gosh, it, I mean, it was a challenge, but he really took it in his strides and, you know, really, you know, he, he then sort of went to the farm and met the farm animals and they ended up in the painting. Yes. So there's, there's a great portrait of, of sort of Henry amongst our sheep, which is really great. And um, he also went sort of sledging outside and, you know, along the dovecot down the hills. So, you know, he, he did get to experience a bit of Bruton, but we hope he'll come back when... And also, there's an amazing film that he, he made um, relating to this show uh, on the Hauser & Worth website, which is almost like a kind of eight millimetre. It's got that kind of old-fashioned mm -hmm. style of documentary film. It's like film. a pop video in some it's ways. It's so good. Yeah. But I love that film, and I, I watched it last night, and, um, and I got this real sense from him that um, even though it could be quite a traumatic idea somehow, like leaving your actual studio where you're used to painting and used to making. For him, as long as he's working, he's fine. So even though it was cold yeah. and raining, like he seemed so content and happy and really productive. Like he, he really made a lot of this work here and it was really exciting for him. Yeah, he's, he's he, but obviously before the pandemic, he traveled a lot and he's like basically the way that he works is hunting and gathering. Yes. So like hunting and gathering information, stories, photographs, objects, and he amasses an incredible collection. He's got an encyclopedic mind, really, not only for art history, but for, you know, social history, political history, mm. and it all feeds into his work. This show actually sort of began its, sort of the seeds of the show began in Los Angeles because um, he he collects a lot of objects. And for the first time, I mean, I, I saw a show of his like 10 years ago in a very small space in Mile End, but like now you, you're seeing this extraordinary body of work and also it's including sculpture for the first time. So I didn't even know he made sculptures. And it's been such a revelation, like seriously a big revelation for me to see these sculptures and to see how they inform the paintings, but also how the paintings inform the sculptures. Yeah. There's this kind of like circularity 
between the whole practice. And it was fascinating because it just is so rich, the kind of layers and the textures within it all. But can you talk a bit about the Los Angeles, like all, all the work that was was there before he got here. Yeah, of course. I mean, if you if you ever get a chance to visit his studio in LA, it's absolutely packed. Um, and so obviously, you know, during, during lockdown in Los Angeles, we didn't have any shows on, so we gave over one of the galleries um, as kind of an unofficial residency for Henry to sort of lay out. So you had the keys, you can go in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty much. Um, so he used it as kind of an extension of his studio, which really allowed him to kind of go through the different objects, think about sort of how he could sort of bring the sculptures together, bring them to life and really think about sort of the Somerset show, which actually by the time, you know, we got to shipping the objects and the works over, he then had a much clearer vision in terms of what he wanted with the sculpture. Right. And these objects come from flea markets, right? I, I read that there's like a rose bowl flea market that he goes to and he, yeah. he picks around bits and bobs and they kind of accumulate as a hoarder in his studio and then they suddenly appear in his work. Sounds like us as well. I mean, I love it. I want, it. I want to go to the flea market with Henry Taylor. That's and you the do dream. get a sense that a lot of these objects he's had for a long time and he's like sitting with them and mm. thinks about them over many, many years, like decade almost or longer and and then eventually they suddenly make sense and, and come to life absolutely absolutely and I think you know Henry the way he also approaches his paintings is, is very similar he might start something and leave it for a long time and come back to it mm. um or it might just all click really quickly it you know it's really kind of you know just that just how his mind works is and weren't there incredible. a few moments in this show where you actually hung some of the paintings maybe even this one here I think is is that one of them but there was definitely a painting in the show or two paintings where you hung them and then he was like actually guys take them off the wall I want to continue painting on them so yeah. they weren't even ready yet for him well yeah it, it's, it's it's interesting the way that he works he's always kind of you know he'll just keep working and working so we obviously had to you know had to work to a deadline and the deadline was his plane leaving back to LA <laughs> so um literally that that morning before he flew out we you know we laid out all the works and he said okay um you know I'd take this one and this one back to my studio I just want to sort of tweak it and he then went on the plane we collected it from the studio it was amazing what he had done in that short amount of time and you know really they were they were fantastic additions did he want to stay did he want to change his flight um, there were a few of those conversations. <laughs> oh my God, that's amazing. Well, anyone listening, follow Chinatown Taylor at Chinatown Taylor on Instagram and you'll see the kind of world of Henry Taylor on there. So let's talk about these paintings. So I think some people think of his work as being kind of like portraiture only, but actually this show proves that his work is not just portraiture. And even though the first few works are portraits, even those are actually quite different to each other in style. Mm. So if you look at this first larger painting here, which we can post a picture of, um, it's a, a head of one of his brothers. And it is like figurative, but but it's kind of missing a lot of the kind of um, the eyes. And the, the it's features. a blank face, isn't it? Yeah. So this is Brother Herschel. This is Brother Herschel, yeah. And actually, just, just to say, um, Henry would sort of hate the word portraitist yes. he really doesn't see himself as a portraitist right. you know he's he's a painter he's a sculptor he's you know all these things but he's definitely not a portraitist um you know he with this specific work yes is herschel taylor who's his third eldest brother um what we're sort of looking at is this kind of classic henry taylor approach to a figure which it is this sort of this outline of, of the facial figure it's completely sort of you know without a face um, and if you saw a photograph of Herschel, you'd be able to completely recognize him. Exactly, yeah. um, and Henry has this incredible ability to catch likeness mm. um, within the paintings very quickly as he's working. Um, what's really interesting about this, uh, about this brother is that actually he was shot in Vietnam. Uh, he fought in Vietnam, was shot in Vietnam, mm. and then died about 10 years later from the wounds. 
And basically oh, when... What, he had shrapnel or something? Or? He had shrapnel, yeah, yeah, exactly. And when Henry was about 10 years old, he would read letters that Herschel would write um, to his mother while he was in Vietnam. And he would sort of mimic and copy the handwriting and just trying to kind of gain an understanding of that experience. And again, you know, it's a it's a reference to kind of how Henry's constantly just absorbing everything that he's hearing and experiencing. He's one of, he's the youngest of eight children. So his nickname is growing up was Henry VIII. I know, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, you can see the kind of the wealth of information he would have, he would have gained from all of his older siblings. And on a kind of very basic level, but if you actually think about the paint that he uses, so he paints with acrylic paint, which in itself gives a particular kind of way that it can look. But actually with his work, he manages to really push the medium to many different places, even in, you know, just in the same room. You can have like four different paintings that might look like they're almost made out of different materials. Like this one's very fluid and very, it's almost like watercolour in the background. Do you know well, what I mean? Like drips, and there's, there's drips. There's an economy there's of paint as well, wasn't there? economy of touch yeah, yeah, yeah. but it says so much and actually looking around you know looking around the approach um to painting it's very different you know we mentioned about this faceless kind of outline figure mm. but that's not always the case with his work you know sometimes there are sort of you, you see his kind of knowledge and references to like picasso and picabia or bob thompson so you know there's lots of those um references that filter into his into his work yeah, bob thompson especially with the color palette yeah, kind of bold outline, like filled in colour figures and shapes and animals and. I really like that about Henry's work as well, the way that he um, he's really passionate about art history, you know, going a long, long way back. But also he loves artists of our time and he sort of will celebrate and reference, you know, his, he's a big his champion, current isn't heroes. He? Yeah, and he champions other yeah. artists, but also even like well-known artists like Yaya Kasama and other people. But I, I love the fact that he's got this kind of engagement and interaction with, you know, existing works he's of contemporary not, artists. He's not denying art history, is he? He's celebrating it and yeah. then adding his own touch. Totally. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's a wonderful relationship he has with the artist Honor Titus so it's kind of like a mentor-mentee relationship and we actually within the exhibition in the fourth gallery we have a, um, an, a portrait of it's one of my favorite paintings of Honor in there yeah such a great work we can see that in a bit so if you look at this painting here we're moving on to another work now which is a bit smaller what's this one called Rob do we know well so most of his works are untitled actually oh, it's I didn't very know that. yeah it's it's very rare that Henry will give a title to a work um and perhaps that's partly to kind of um, you know, Henry Henry doesn't want to be didactic in terms of his works. He doesn't want to kind of give you too much information. He mm. wants you to really experience it and kind of, you know, understand. Project onto it yourself. Yeah, right. and understand, you know, what you can from the keys that he's given you. Right. Um, this is actually a portrait of his cousin Darnell, who's, you know, he speaks to almost every day. He's very, very close to. And I think you can sort of see that intimacy um, you know, and their closeness. It's just so alive as a painting. Like, it feels like Darnell is, like, stood in front of us right now, like, in that garden. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's it's an extraordinary way of bringing kind of someone to life, you know, through paint. But that's also come out of the fact that he often paints in real life or from photographs. Yes, um, absolutely. I mean, there, you know, there are many instances where Henry will just say to someone in the middle of a conversation, sit down, I'm going to paint you right now. Um, and unfortunately, you know, that couldn't obviously happen during during lockdown times. But there are a few um, works within the show where there are instances of that. Um, so previously Haven't there been in the past, like, even Hazard and Worth employees who ended up in paintings? Or... Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I think the beauty of Henry is that he, you know, he sees everyone as, you know, as the same. Yeah. And there's no hierarchy, is there? He has his studio assistants in, he has his family in, he has other artists in. It feels like he really 
allows everybody into his practice. Yeah, absolutely. And that's even down to the materials that he uses. You know, there's there's a democracy in terms of the materials that he uses. You know, when he was starting out, he obviously couldn't, you know, couldn't afford canvases, so would just find, you know, cigarette boxes yeah. or cookie boxes to paint over. Cereal boxes. Cereal boxes, that. yeah. Favourite, yeah. Yes. That was the first thing I heard about, actually, was Russ, like, singing the praises of those particular works, which you have a whole room of here as well. Yes, yes. we do, yeah. yeah. But so so these are painted, like, the, the figures are painted in person or from photographs, but it feels like the sculptures come out of a place of memory or instinct. He brings all the ephemera together, all the objects together and creates a narrative, but they don't feel like they're drawing on an experience that's happening in the moment with the sculptures. Would I be wrong or right about that? Well, I think just with with Henry's complete approach, I mean, it's very intuitive and very organic. So, you know, he'll he'll sort of place something together and then he might tweak it, live with it for a bit and then change it. And it's the same way that he approaches the painting as well. You know, there aren't preparatory drawings that, you know, that I'm aware of. um, And, you know, it really is something that he just kind of keeps coming back to it. So, you know, it... It's difficult to say. I, I can't speak for him, but yeah, that's yeah. at least what you know. What I've understood working. I think with him. the thing I find really striking about the sculptures is if you think about time and like the duration of making a work. Sometimes his paintings, even though they have taken even a year to make, um, they can look very immediate because he's so good at creating that likeness and that that mm. presence of the individual, the kind of inner soul, the kind of personality of them. Um, but with the sculptures, they, they look much more like they've sort of maybe taken a long time, which then informs the paintings because you realize he's actually spending a long time making the paintings too but um all these all these different objects within them so if we look at this first one here with these tires um he's he's kind of done away with the idea of a plinth so his sculptures often exist as complete you know objects even from the base all the way up they, they all have like elements to them that are giving they us they feel kind of precarious as well like if yes. you bumped into that it would all kind of roll apart and fall apart but it feels like he There's celebrates that he wants yeah. that kind of tension there yeah yeah can you speak about, about this first one? Yeah, of course. So um, this piece is called Y'all Started This Shit Anyway, yeah. um, which is actually one of the few works that he's titled within the exhibition. And it's actually about his um, fourth eldest brother, Randy Taylor, um, who was deeply sort of involved in, well, he he set up the Black Panthers movement in Ventura County. Yeah, which um, is outside Los Angeles, isn't yes, it? Yes, exactly. And that's yeah. where he grew up as well, the whole family. Well, that's where he was, that's where Henry was born. born yeah. yeah. Um, but his, his father lives in Texas and yeah so they're kind of spread out um but Randy and and his father sort of deeply involved in the Native American movement and live in Texas on a reservation oh right um and basically what we're looking at is kind of this um this sort of tableau sort of surface um that has this bull on top there's a tree and kind of a a kind of a golf flag coming at the top and it's sort of underneath it are, are two sort of tires that are tense together one has sort of a Texan boot obviously referencing kind of where where the family's from and as well a kind of a sort of a mannequin head um, with sort of kind of hair kind of referencing, I guess, Native American mm-hmm. scalping. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the words, the word sitting, which has been inscribed on the side. Um, and essentially this, this sitting re- refers to Sitting Bull who led the resistance against U.S. government policies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, obviously with Henry, you know, there are these kind of uh, multiple levels to how you can read the work and, uh, you know, I've mentioned a bit of kind of the heavy political aspects of it, but then at the same time, you know, his brother also loves golf, so he's put in the the golf flag as well. So there's this constant push and pull of kind of personal, jovial 
humor. Yeah, but it's two tires, and then you've got this yeah, mannequin's head inside one tire, the boot inside the other tire, and then this is, we're looking at like an old kitchen table sideboard that's had the legs chopped down, and it's very rustic and, you know, worn out, but then this all together, it creates this amazing new object in the world. Yeah. It's given it all new life. It's incredibly exciting. Yeah. And people haven't really seen his sculptures as much as his paintings, right? Yeah. I mean, he, you know, he's been making sculpture for a very long time and it's been part of his practice, but it's just something that, you know, hasn't really been focused on or celebrated. And this is something that within this exhibition we felt, you know, we really wanted, well, Henry really wanted to to show the sculpture. And so we really worked hard to position the sculpture together as much as the painting yeah, in equal weight. Important. I think sometimes the contemporary art market, like galleries and, you know, especially when you're, you're younger in your career, can sometimes just want to sell paintings because it's something that collects immediately want to buy but I think in order to understand an artist and the way they think about the world which is often so special and unique because that's what artists are there to do is to like you know stand outside of society and reflect in almost and let us see what's going on I think it's really important not to like um, hide certain parts of an artist's practice like you need to see it all to understand wh- where that's they're coming what's from. brilliant about House and West Somerset is it is a commercial gallery but it feels like we're in a museum it feels like yeah. we've travelled out of town to come here and we're having a museum experience, even though it is a commercial space, and that feels incredibly like a privilege, really. It's also taking the work seriously, you know what I mean? Like in a in a very like detailed way. Like the fact you even know all the, you know, the very fine details of every work. And I know there are some works he won't even talk about, like the sculpture over there, he doesn't even discuss what it's about. But I, I love that sort of attention to detail mm. as well. Um, I love this painting here, by the way. This one really reminds me a bit of Picabio because of the eyes. Yeah. Well, I, actually, Henry said that he was thinking about Picabio when he painted this. Ah. Um, and this is actually a portrait of his eldest son, Noah. Yeah, so it's you can really see that Picabio reference in the eyes. I love yeah. the body movements as well. I think he often gets this amazing physicality in the portraits, which is very unusual. Like, he finds those kind of um, idiosyncratic, kind of um, very personal poses in a way like mm. the way that he's got his hand here bent on his face it's quite formal it's quite a formal position as well we'll have to show this up on instagram but it's quite a, and you can look online also by the way online there is a whole 360 degree show yeah. of this so while you're listening to this podcast tour, you can probably like a, look online and sit, walk around the show with us there's a silent video which you could actually almost listen to the podcast while watching the silent yeah. video it's Absolutely. very cool <laughs> but just to go back how important is it that this does feel like a museum experience rather than a commercial gallery experience well for us i mean we make no you know we don't hide the fact that we're a commercial gallery, but we're very public facing. And, you know, even before we opened our doors, sort of the events and education program and the community was sort of key to, to you know, making Housing Worth Somerset what it is. You know, we're really proud that so many members of the local community come and visit us multiple times mm. a week and feel it's really their space to be able to come as well as international collectors, visitors, museum directors. So, um, and through our events and education program, it's, you know, providing multiple access points for people of, of all artistic knowledge to be able to enter the work. And, you know, for us, as long as we keep doing the the strong, you know, high quality shows that, that we hope we're doing for everyone, oh, yeah. um, then, you know, there's lots of ways to, to get involved and understand. And you can see shows, but then there's also amazing 
restaurant <laughs> and bar and know, bookshop. And, honestly, and The thing I like about coming here, which I've experienced both times or three times that I've been here, is the way it slows you down. I feel like you're not in a in a hectic rush to have to run through an exhibition and then get to a meeting or, you know, you can make this trip and actually have a really great, relaxed, fun yeah, time. Is, yeah. And in the restaurant yesterday, there was like a really elderly um, grandmother with her kids, you know, her, her children and then their children. They were having such a laugh. And, you know, it's nice to see the community are actually properly engaged, like local people. But also you can come out of London. You don't have to stay in London anymore. You know, or I love the, the idea of the towns art or being cities. across the it's UK. Just like, yeah. Yeah. And we had a fennel smoothie, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah, but even with you, with the Turner <laughs> Prize triumph. this year, like the Turner Prize isn't going to be in London this year. It's no, it's in a Coventry. Coventry. And, you know, us in Margate. I think it's a really great thing to, like, decentralise and to have Especially these, what we've been in the lockdown where you've yes. been there. It's a bit like, come on, explore the the country and know what we've got on your on your doorstep really yeah. this space is incredible yeah totally incredible yeah. so this painting here is um depicting uh henry's partner and yes. they've had a child recently yes yeah so they I, I believe she's now about eight months old and the Aww. daughter's name is epic epic that fantastic name. That name is epic and that's oh, i just want epic. i want to name all my dogs and children epic and legend and marvel. We were talking about this last yeah. night. Like, what should we, what should we name the kids? Yeah. But the interesting thing about this painting is, even though it, it does, you know, depict her, it's actually becomes something else. So it's no longer just a portrait. It's become a kind of narrative and a, a very complex, rich story. Absolutely. Yeah. It started off kind of as this sort of portrait um, of Liz, sort of pregnant with epic, and evolved into this, you know, really Bob Thompson esque kind of surreal landscape where she's kind of turned into an angel. Her face sort of has this sort of Picasso-like qualities. Um, there's a sort of shadow or soul of another kind of reclining, um, a very classic kind of reclining angel um, yeah. in the back. And there's like a car in the background as well driving past and a little snake in the tree, which I guess is a reference to the Adam and Eve and... I mean, you know, your guess is as good as yeah, mine. Yeah. But I like the kind of way it almost looks like collage cutout as well. So there's kind of like different, there's like 3D elements in it and then yeah. very like flat kind of 2D elements. It almost makes you think of like Matisse or something. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like the late oh, the paper cutouts, cutout yeah, works yeah. or something. But even also where he's, you know, where he's positioned the main figure, you know, the the main figure is not fully in view. You know, it's kind of cut off at the knees. Part of the arm is sort of hidden. And, you know, he's not he's not sort of restricting himself to kind of the classical, you know, the classical layouts of, of painting. Right? Yeah. He, you know, he's doing it completely his own way. Yeah. Yeah, it's extraordinary. So this, we'll look at this next sculpture. So you mentioned very briefly about the dovecot. Now, I was really excited about the show because Henry Taylor in Somerset, I was like, well, what is Henry Taylor's experience of Somerset and how is that going to, come out in the work and you talked about the painting we're going to see later on with the sheep from the field lucky sheep but this sculpture we're looking at now has a dovecot sculpture on top so what is the dovecot of Bruton can we talk about that and then yeah. how this comes into the work yeah absolutely so the dovecot is kind of um I guess the unofficial symbol of Bruton and um it's basically a, a roofless folly that sits on top of a hill it's been here for hundreds of years and what's a folly um, a folly is basically just a, a building on a landscape that has no kind of real functional purpose. Yeah. Um, it's not a show-off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> creativity yeah. in, I think, in the landscape. I think historically dovecots were sort of placed on um, someone's sort of highest point of their land as kind of a, a sign of wealth okay. historically. Yeah, so it's showing um, off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, but the dovecot sort of, you know, you can see it in view from the gallery on the hill and, you know, you can easily hike up to it. And this is actually right nearby where where Henry went sledging down, down the hill. Um, 
um, uh, alongside the dovecot, yeah. Wow, so we're looking at a small dovecot sculpture on top of two trash cans with some stool legs or table legs they could be. And also Russell's using the word trash can because they're not like bins like we would have in They're like garbage pail kids. They are like kind of... They're like Sesame Street. They are kind of a bit like that. The the grouch would come out of that. Metal bins, yes. But I love that. But that is definitely because you cannot deny that that is his experience of being here because he would never... I put that into a sculpture there, there back in Los Angeles. There is something quite like classic and like romantic about it as well. It's almost like fairy tales or something. Do you know it what I mean? Like some like kind Rapunzel. Of, or, yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I love the fact that again he's done away with the plinth and he mm. uses these stool or you know furniture legs mm. as the as the kind of you know plinth in a way. Like it's really brilliant. Yeah, I love sculptures are, that can yeah. exist in their own way. So uh, you can hear we've come into another space. So we was in the threshing lounge. We possibly threshing barn. <laughs> the threshing barn, and this space here. What what would this originally have been, and what is it called? So this was originally originally the workshop of the farm. Okay, and this again is a is the ceilings are a bit lower in here, so it feels a bit more uh, intimate. But we're seeing uh, four more of uh, three more paintings in here, and then four floor based sculptures and one wall based sculpture. Uh, again, it's all just so beautifully curated. I mean, who curates this show? Well, we have the gallery because we're a commercial gallery. We don't have a curator. It's, you know, there's a team of people that work very closely with the artists. Um, each artist has their, also their own micro team within the gallery. So it's really just, you know, working really closely with the artists, understanding what they want to achieve and, you know, bringing that to life. Really. So he's quite hands-on with his curating of his own shows as well. Um, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say that because, I mean, Henry's really interested in, you know, the, the realisation, the development of the work. Mm. Um, but I think it, it really is through kind of the conversations and together in terms of like how, how it kind of actually gets played out in the space. I mean, interestingly, the first room that we walked through, it ended up that that's a very personal room sort of referencing a lot of his family members, whereas this gallery space that we're standing in, you know, there's a lot of references to his time in New York, his um, inspiration of Gustin. Philip Gustin is, you know, a, a major player um, mm. within his work and a major source of inspiration. Um, one of the pieces actually was a direct um, result of, of him visiting an exhibition that we had of Philip Gustin's back in LA a few mm. years back. Because Hauser have Philip Gustin's estate, don't they? Yes, yes. yeah. One of the things I love about this room is, for me, the special thing about artists is they often make worlds and they can kind of create another universe or, you know, a version of our own world that they represent back to us. And there's something about this room. There's a really small work in the corner which is called um, Chips Chip Off, off the, the Old Block. block. Oh, well, it's not the old no, block, but that's chips, what I... It's chips it, that, Off the Block. Yes. Um, but it's got these these bits of wood, which wood he chips. actually... Wood, wood chips, which he cut here, and even an antler, which kind of relates to some of the other work. Well, I but, feel like that also comes into the fact that he had to light a lot of fires in January in the cold summer. Somerset yeah. lockdown and this kind of feels like these Kindle suddenly went hang on a minute they but, feel like something but also it got me thinking about this connection between like buildings and structures that are created in society so you've got like these New York skylines mm. and then they're also reflected in the paintings mm. um, and even the Statue of Liberty and the way that like societies are built and created actually is all man-made Do you know what I mean like you know those bricks are put together by by men mm. and there's something about the kind of very simple idea of like getting an axe you know cutting up a piece of wood that's like almost the beginning stage of those foundations of society which I don't know I just think 
think it's a really elegant kind of it feels metaphorical as well chip like we would say chip off the old block means yes. like your kids like you're very much like your dad whatever and it feels yeah. like because of his children i feel like maybe this is quite a personal work as well for him they yeah. feel like these are referencing because he's away from his family at, at that time it feels like he's referencing them in this wall sculpture and also it's very like um humble materials again because yes. you've got cardboard you know it's from the earth in many ways like with yeah. the the natural wood. I love it. Um, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of sometimes like word association as well. So yeah, the chip off the old block, the actual blocks, as you've pointed out. So yeah, you've absolutely. Read <laughs> this it sculpture we've got in front of us now is uh, an old Singer sewing machine base, and then there's uh, a plaster cast of an ironing board, and then on top of that is several like twelve. Uh, could be they look like perfume boxes or kind of boxes for something that he's then made into these buildings with trees amongst them and what i loved about this is that i didn't realize this but actually most painters will use a palette that they work from for their paint but henry taylor uses an ironing board that is his artist palette that for me blew my mind (laughs) and now i see these images i'm like that's an ironing board he's painting off of and here we have the ironing board in front of us yeah no it was incredible actually seeing him in the studio with with the ironing board because he was just like it's a bigger surface for me to work on why wouldn't i use it Mm. um and that's really kind of you know how how his mind really works um and i guess just thinking you know just about this sort of cityscape that you've mentioned here um henry actually talks a bit about um a reoccurring dream he has about kind of you know flying over cities and looking down um at kind of housing projects just thinking about communities and domestic themes so this is kind of i guess partly what perhaps perhaps started this series um for him um but also just sort of the act of kind of painting these these cookie boxes or perfume boxes um they're, they're again reminiscent of gustin um but they're also he kind of sees them very much as it's a methodical act for him mm. and one of my favorite paintings in the whole show is actually here now with this um this kind of skyline skyline and it, i'd never seen a painting by henry taylor like this and it's it really excites me to see how diverse his work is and how, how you know, it's not, it's totally different to the, the figurative portraits I'd seen. And can you explain a bit about this? Because there's something about, like, the joy of the lights and the sparkling It's nighttime, and, isn't it? It's, yeah. sort of like, it's typical New York. You can see the Chrysler Empire State so Building, good. the skyline at night. It's like a majesty, isn't there, to it? Yeah, there is a majesty, Rob, yeah. Well, ab- yeah, absolutely. And the, the the sort of the New York skylines or the cityscapes, they're really reminiscent of that time that he spent sort of about 2018 in New York. Um, and he was kind of constantly saying, oh, he, you know, he felt the presence of Gustin. Um, and actually the, the work at the end of the gallery here with the portrait of a friend of his, Natalie, that was kind of a direct moment where he felt Gustin. He was like, sit down, Natalie, I'm going to paint you now. And actually even in the skyline behind there, you have sort of not only um, the sort of the, the pinks and the hues that Gustin would use mm. but then even one of the buildings almost is reminiscent of one of Gustin's you know how he did books. the publications yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly I, I love the boots and the way that she's got her legs crossed oh, she loved that, the boots in that picture oh yeah, yeah <laughs> they look like Prada boots no um no I, I love I actually love that I just love the way it's painted I think it's such a again it's just it comes to life doesn't it you can yeah. imagine being there like as if she's chatting with you it's, yeah like she's in the room. Um, and then there's a smaller painting here as well of like another landscape, but this time I love that. it's from an interior. So you actually see the interior space and the exterior. Oh, yeah, so you're, you're looking out of a window. Yeah. I didn't see that before. And, and the, the shape, it was actually um, yesterday when we walked around, our friend um, Aileen, who also works here and we'll be meeting her later, but she pointed that out. Because at first you might just think the white lines are another building or something. Mm. Do you know what I mean? But it's actually like an interior window. I, I love that. 
Yeah, and then next to that painting is this amazing sculpture with a kind of breeze block um, base, but it's got the Statue of Liberty. And actually, there are all these black sprayed dots, which apparently are referencing Yoyo Kusama's work. Yeah, absolutely. He said he was thinking about Kusama when he was when he was creating that work. Um, and also, I guess, just about kind of, you know, we talked a bit about sort of housing projects. And again, you know, bricks, there's a cinder block brick underneath that can also be sort of a nickname for public housing projects. Mm. Um, and then you see this kind of wooden kind of totem-like object on the top, which again, you know, makes you think of Brancusi. So there's mm. all these sort of different references that are constantly coming into the work. And the thing about sculptures is they don't look like anyone else's sculptures. I've never really seen this before do you know what I mean and that is honestly when I came here yesterday and we saw it it was like a revelation because I don't know he's created this new language even this sculpture here he's made it out of like masking tape to create this face and then you've got a ship um you know where the brain would be um I think referencing the kind of slave um ships and and that history yeah exactly and and ships is something that comes sort of comes up in Henry's work time and time again and it it does yes reference the slave ships yeah Mm. So we talked earlier on about how uh, Henry, when he didn't have a lot of money, but he wanted materials to paint on, to use, he couldn't get canvas. So he used to have cigarette boxes and cereal boxes. So we have a whole room here of painted cigarette boxes in the most beautiful frames because they're both sides. We're not allowed to touch them, but whoever collects them will be able to open up and look at the other side. And there's two cereal boxes. This room for like me and Rob, oh, and there's a whole collage one of six there, uh, cigarette boxes. But for me and Rob, this is like... We went. We kind of squealed a bit when we came in here yeah. because it's just so they're so intimate and perfect, and the way it's curated is so beautiful. Can we talk a bit about how these works came into existence? Of course, yeah. This is actually um, a collection of works over the last thirty years. So I guess this is more of a kind of a, a historical kind of overview of his works as is they've this been the first time They've been shown like this together on a show. I believe so. Wow. I believe I believe a lot of these, you know, have been in, you know, Henry's studio and Henry's possession and, you know, I think he's been waiting for the right moment to really share share these works and, you know, we feel so privileged that he was willing to to show them here in Somerset with us. Um and I should also mention, you know, yes, you you talked about the cigarette boxes and the cereal boxes, but then sometimes he'll even use like candy boxes. So I don't know if anyone um who might be North American listener knows hot tamales so he's sort of taken the hot tamales candy sort of box and sort of blacked it out and it says sort of hot males on <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, we noticed that one, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we definitely noticed that one. I think I, I really love these works as well because there's a, even though they're paintings, there, there's a kind of link to drawing in some of them as well. There's, mm-hmm. You see graphite lines occasionally, line, but yeah. also the way that they're not on canvas and I think that's why Russell and I love them. Like these cigarette boxes, how, how he has to express himself and needs to get the idea out and that was the most practical way that for him to do it. That was what was to hand, wasn't it? He brings that in. And... Yeah. yeah, and I guess, you know, they're, 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 they're little moments, they're little thoughts that he's having, little ideas um, that are coming out. And I think, you know, it, 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 this medium lends itself really well to his kind of fast-working mind. The immediacy really shows in these works. Mm. Do we know the dates of these? Because as you said, the last 30 years, do we, are they dated or are they, they all put here like as if... They're... Yeah, no, they're, they're, each individual one is dated. Really? Yeah. yeah. He doesn't title these ones either. No, these are all untitled. Okay. So it feels like the sculptures are titled, but the paintings, not so much. I think on the, in this exhibition, if I'm not mistaken, I believe just one sculpture is titled. Okay. Oh, sorry. Yeah, one sculpture the is titled. The sitting bull one we saw with the tie. Yeah. Right, okay. One of my favourite works there in this room is the um, Pops one, the one that's on the cereal box. Yeah. With like a, uh, a coach 
underneath a bus underneath and a wall and it could be like a school bus or it could be a bus going somewhere taking people somewhere but you've got this pops in it which is obviously corn pop cereal but in this reference it feels like what you call your dad or your granddad hey pops it's like that reference is that yeah and i think it is a direct reference for his father yeah exactly it's also a bit pop arty in itself like there's something quite no i know yeah but i love that one And one of the most um, disturbing works in many ways is this text piece here, which was from a bumper sticker that his brother had seen. Yeah, so Randy, who who we sort of mentioned in the first gallery, who um, set up the Black Panther movement in Ventura County, um, about 10 years ago, he was, you know, on on the motorway driving behind a car and read, you know, read the text on this bumper sticker, an incredible sort of racial slur. Um, You can see an image of it. I'm sure you guys will share. Um, And, you know, he shared this text with Henry and you know, just the audacity that someone would have that text on the back of their car. It stayed with Henry for a long time. Um, And, you know, he sort of referenced those words into this small miniature work. Um, And that that work, you know, the text actually stayed with him for a very long time. And 10 years later, it actually um, served to inform the the first outdoor sculpture he'll ever come to do, which Mm -hmm. is with us here in Somerset, Mm -hmm. which is out in the garden. Yeah, we can go out and see that in a moment. Um, so we're going into another space now. Where are we now, Daya? Well, this is this is all called the pigsty. So we so were just all... in the pigsty. Yes, yeah, sorry. So this is just a pigsty. Oh, <laughs> sorry, there, there are no pigs here, so that's probably no, why yeah, you didn't. Anyone uh... listening, we aren't walking over pigs and uh, <laughs> <laughs> troughs and stuff. But that and, used to be the pigsty. That's crazy. And right at the end of the pigsty is this self-portrait of him, which is so brilliant. And he said it's his self-portrait. He would be quite open about saying, this is me. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's absolutely, yeah. He said it was a portrait of him. He's sort of seated in his studio um, in his pants with wearing one sock. So, you know, really relaxed in his, in his comfortable, you know, in his habitat of being in the yeah. studio. It's kind of like he's looking into a mirror or something, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah. But Henry Taylor's work isn't kind of anyone who's got a, a, a big ego would probably be offended by being painted by Henry Taylor because they're not like beautiful images of people. He captures the interior. He's more interested in kind of your soul, Rob, which, you're which that I word, love. love that word. Rather than kind of making you feel better about yourself by painting, well, and even very honest, paint, aren't they? They're quite brutally honest. But even yeah. this painting himself, like he's got a little pot belly, it looks like in that picture, and he's not like he's not shown himself to be this kind of alpha, super kind of like out front and centre man. He's he's sitting, he's quite kind of fragile, a bit like um, vulnerable, sat there on the seat, and that's what's great about his work is it celebrates the vulnerability and the honesty of people, rather than kind of trying to project them into being something else. I almost feel like he might tell us a joke any moment as well oh, yeah. do you know what I mean like it's kind of like he's about to say something fun well no you you know he really captures the kind of the human individual and you know there there is um there's an image of you know one of his studio managers that he that he painted or painting one of his studio managers and then when I had met that studio manager I knew exactly who that person was right. so you know there there really is this incredible ability for him to to kind of bestow likeness and sort of character into a painting mm. so if we go outside now this is one of the things i love most about somerset is the 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 way that the architect worked with um a landscaped architect i guess you or a gardener i don't, I don't quite know what the term would be well for this artist but i mean they are an artist <laughs> as well with flowers yeah so pete pete aldoff is sort of known as you know the famous dutch landscape designer um but really if you ask him he calls himself a plantsman um plantsman, so just okay. because he you know he intensely knows kind of how plants grow how they move he's incredibly fascinated by them and he really thinks about 
how they'll work over the course of a year. So, so yes, um, so basically like the whole, you know, we have this 1.5 acre field in the back that's, you know, that's called the Udolf field mm. after Pete Udolf. But what a few people don't know, or what a lot of people don't know is that he actually did the whole kind of, um, you know, site garden design. So we're standing here in the cloister. So you see his planting here amongst the cloister. And he also did the whole sort of front kind of flower beds and areas. Um, and the way that he works is that he wants you to kind of look out into the fields and his, into his gardens and think, oh, it just so happens to be this sort of beautiful, random, natural, wild landscape. Yeah, whereas actually it's really detailed it's and really planned considered. and cared for. So and any nurtured. time of the year you can come yeah, and well, it, a, you'll see something fascinating and beautiful. It's a late blooming garden. So it actually like continues throughout the year, which is perennial, isn't thing. it? Which I had to look up because I wasn't really au fait with perennial, a, which means it lives more than two years. Oh, Yeah, well, it, it kind of keeps reoccurring each yes. year. And so, so, cool. so he, I, in a way, he kind of thinks, I don't know, I, I like to think about it as almost like a symphony sort of building up. You know, it all gets cut back in kind of yeah. February, March. And then you have this kind of grand crescendo in sort of September, October of this burst of colour. And, you know, it's, yeah, it's really beautiful. I, yeah. I, I feel it's beautiful any time of yeah. year. Yeah, well, anyone that's it. been in the High Line in New York, uh, Pierre Aldolf did the High Line as well, as well as here. And he's basically painting a garden with flowers. Yeah, well, is, he is. And do you know what? He's meant to be a total rock star in the sense that, like, when they have events where he does talks, yeah. they completely sell out and people are, like, queuing around the block to meet yeah, him. Well, we can talk a bit more about that with later. But we've yeah. just come into the Rhodes Gallery. Now, it's called the Rhodes Gallery because Jason Rhodes, the artist, is very important to House and Worth's history. Yeah, he's, he's basically one of the key artists of sort of the DNA of the gallery. And um, when we renovated the buildings, which um, are over 250 years old, Old. Obviously, there were some buildings that didn't survive and we needed to, you know, make some fit for purpose for the gallery. So out of the five gallery spaces that we walked through, the last two are new builds and we wanted to name them something that referenced kind of our history. So we're standing in Rhodes after Jason Rhodes. And then the final gallery is the Bourgeois Gallery after Louise Bourgeois. Oh, I love her. So this room is a presentation of a series of new paintings, many different kind of um, scales as well. So you've got very, very large paintings next to much smaller paintings, but they're just captivating. I mean, we could talk about all of them, really. I mean, I love the self-portrait there of him with the, the, the sheep and the animals from the barn here. And he's actually wearing his um, pyjamas. And you'll also see that on the Hauser website with the film. And on his Instagram, he loves painting yeah. in his pyjamas. He's Love known for the stripy silk pyjamas yeah. they look like. Or... Yeah. No, it was, it, was, it was actually quite surreal um, watching him sort of hang that painting while wearing the, uh, the stripy really? <laughs> pyjamas. And are the sheep aware that they're in this portrait? <laughs> <laughs> They've been in to see it yet? Um, they haven't been in to see it yet. Right, but okay, right. I think I think he probably did ask permission for the photograph. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Good. Love it. So we're now walking out uh, to the oh, wow. Adolf Field. Adolf. How do you so say his name? Uh, it's spelled O U D O L F. Adolf. Adolf. Okay. That's at least how I pronounce it. <laughs> so we're looking at this beautiful meadow, which was built by or well, created by the Dutch landscape designer Piet Adolf. Uh, and at the very end is this pavilion, which uh, <laughs> there's, there's a pavilion at the end, which was designed by a Chilean architect called Simeon Radic. Now, I actually performed the reading we talked about when, we, when I came here yes. before in this pavilion. And this pavilion was originally at the Serpentine Gallery in 2014. And then it was meant to be a temporary structure. But 
Uh, everybody loved it so much that Howes and Worth were able to bring it here in 2015 and position it at the end the of the The thing I love field. about it is it looks like it's just landed out of space or yeah, something. It's like, like a, it's like it's a like kind Flintstones of... Flintstones on so a, cool. a UFO. That's what it makes me think of. And it's got like Yorkshire stone underneath it. These yeah. giant um, kind of... What's know, amazing actually stones. is there's a camera here above us and if you go on the website, there is a 24-hour oh, CCTV wow. image of everybody visiting the garden. Oh. So if you look on the website now, you can actually... You won't see us now because it's not live, but you might be able to look back and you'll be able to see people like walking around this garden because this this place is open to the public like a museum because you have the restaurant you have the bookshop so people can and come it's here free, free to get into as well yeah absolutely and um you know each year we select either a single local charity or a collection of local charities to support so any donations you know when people come to visit they can you know all the money goes to those local charities now the sculpture which is the final work of the show is a brand new work and um, it's actually bronze, isn't it? It's, and yeah. It's amazing because it's actually positioned as if this, this figure is running into these fields. Like, mm. it's a really incredibly This powerful. was inspired by his brother Randy in that conversation about the bumper sticker, the racist bumper sticker that he Absolute, witnessed. Absolutely. And actually, I should mention that this is his first um, outdoor sculpture as well that wow. he's ever done. Um, and so what we're sort of looking at is this kind of mannequin figure, um, a headless mannequin figure sort of running into the distance, wearing this sort of black leather jacket. Um, the leather jacket obviously referencing kind of the Black Panthers movement mm. and how, you know, they were all encouraged to kind of wear leather jackets as a sign of solidarity mm. and then sort of sprouting out of the headless neck are these incredible sort of branches uh, very much sort of evocative of of sort of deer antlers mm. so again referencing back to the text of the bumper sticker and it's it's nestled amongst three trees that have the same branches was that a conscious thought that he knew it was going to go there or did that he definitely wanted it in the field and in the garden yeah. um but obviously until you know until the work arrived until henry arrived we you know, we didn't place it, but it just, it seemed to fit beautifully in, wow. in that I also place. like the kind of reference to, because it's positioned in where the head would be, the tree, it's kind of like this idea of like, you know, the future, the past, because we trees are obviously so and, so historic yeah. as well. Like tree, trees are often like here for hundreds of years, you know what I mean? And this kind of connection to our past or to, you know, his past, I, I, I find it really touching because of that. And this idea of nature as well. Absolutely, yeah. The connection between humans and nature, and yeah, it it all it all comes out. It's rooted in humanity, isn't it? That tree. There we go. Absolutely. So, and this was you this said is, it better than me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this is a bronze that was uh, there was a foundry in Los Angeles, and it was created there, or was it made? Conceived? Yeah, yeah. So obviously, due to due to sort of time and and everything, and obviously, it's you know, it's it's a sculpture that Henry's been you know, forming in his mind for a very long time. So, yes, it was it was um, made in L.A. and then brought over here. Amazing. Wonderful. And will it be here for a while? Or will it go it, when the show goes? It will over? go when the show goes. Oh, no. Yeah. All right, you got till June 6th to see it. So we are now going to go and meet another one of our friends who is also a director at Hauser & Worth, um, Aileen Corkery, who's an old friend of mine, and we're going to go and find her and discuss a bit more about um, what Hauser & Hauser & Worth, yes. Okay. So here we are, joining uh, Daya, Rob and myself is Aileen Corkery. Hi, Aileen. Hi, guys. It's such a treat to have you here. You're, we are all such fans of yours at Halzer and Birth, artists and team alike. So thank you for coming down. And you and I are old friends. So we met about 12 years ago, thankfully, from the uh, collector and... Um, philanthropist uh, Valeria Napoleone mm -hmm. because we went to a dinner, didn't we, to support Studio Voltaire? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And as we've discussed today, so many of our artists in the gallery were inspired by their first show in Studio Voltaire, like yeah. Philida and Nicole, who you were talking about earlier. Yeah. So it's... um. 
again, we all know in the art world, it's a small place if you connect to artists and to people. Yeah, definitely. And also, Russ, you then became a big patron of Studio Voltaire. Oh, I love Studio Voltaire. We, we were shopkeepers at House of Voltaire and <laughs> all kinds of stuff, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we were just walking around the Henry Taylor show, and Henry Taylor, as we said, was part of a uh, artist residency that you run here, which you have been running for a while. So how did... How does that work for people listening? How does an artist's residency work and how does that then feed into the gallery space? Well, I think it's it's actually a matter of the artists themselves and if they have the interest and capacity to change spaces, to change geography, to change cultures. And I think um, when I'm so in admiration of Henry, he hadn't been here. He's leaving at a time of light in L.A., it's home, and he takes that huge risk, and he has to make work for a show that's opening in February. So I think it's very much the nature of the artist which will make it successful. But when um, the Somerset was being devised, it was very much about wanting artists to be here, not just to come, install a show, and leave. Mm. Because as we've only been down here for, what, 24 hours? Yeah. And it's like we've been here for a month. I know, we already like, feel we part really of the far- community. Exactly. Like, yeah. It changes you. But also we feel that we can provide a lot of different alternatives and opportunities to our artists that isn't just make a work, do a show, do a fair, do a museum show. Mm. Yeah. It's like let's help develop you which we all know helps develop the work and your own purpose, offer opportunities. So I think when this program began, many of our artists thought, well, why would I want to go to rural UK? I want to be in London. I want the big museum directors. Will anybody go down there? (laughs) Well, within the first year, Dea, there was approximately, what did you have about, what was the total number? In the middle of nowhere, people are traveling in terms well, of visitor so we, numbers? We average about 150,000 visitors a year. Um, obviously, this is pre-COVID. Yeah. It, extraordinary yeah. numbers. Yeah. But it's also a diversity of people. And this really helps add to another level of engagement that no one can predict. You guys know, as you've discussed, walking into our Savile Row gallery, I mean, we have a very nice front desk, mm. but it's Savile Row. It's Mayfair. Mm. It is a um, it's a different kind it's of alienating. Space. Yeah, it can be. Yeah. So here, as you were commenting earlier about the grandma and her daughter and her yeah. kids, yeah. really enjoying herself in the Roth Bar. Yeah. That family may go in and spend time in Henry Taylor. Mm. And what can happen there? We've seen all these children, all these different people hanging out the Nicole Eisenman. Mm. It's offering these spaces in a really friendly, accessible way. It's completely way. welcoming. And then artists are reading into that because they also know that they're missing something. Like, life is short. Why don't I see what my work can really do mm. and how it can affect people? Is that a risk, though, for the artist residency? Do all artist residencies, are they promised a show? No. They're not. So there's no risk they're going, like, what if they haven't got any work we've now got you scheduled in? No. No. Sometimes, and we offer, it's not just to gallery artists. We offer it to um, other artists, which Dea could probably comment on in terms of... Yeah, so the residency program is something that we've uh, intentionally kept very open and organic. And um, it's, you know, 
it's tailored for each uh, specific artist. And it always comes through kind of a personal invitation of Ivan Manuela to that artist. Um, Who's Ivan and Manuela? So Ivan Manuela um, set up the gallery um, together with Ursula Hauser about 30 years ago. Um, and they also, when they moved to the UK to open the London Gallery, they actually decided to settle in Somerset. Um, and that's where their family home is. And that's you know, why we're in Somerset, actually, is that they fell in love with the local area, fell in love with this building, and it all kind of developed organically. Um, and I think the most, you know, the artists are at the heart of everything that we do, and the residencies are absolutely vital to that. And actually, three of the residencies um, ended up kind of filtering into three site-specific works that we have on site, um, two which in the Dursleade Farmhouse, one by Guillermo Kick. Quicker, one by Pipilotti Wrist, mm-hmm. and then um, permanent works. They're permanent works okay. that live in the farmhouse, and then um, Bjorn and Otto Roth, so the son and grandson of Dieter Roth, mm. um, made an art bar, which actually is, is why the restaurant is called Roth Bar and Grill. Oh, I see. That's so cool. Yeah. So, in Ivan Manuela, initially, they didn't know what this would be, but they knew they wanted their artist here. Right. So again. It all just developed in a way that made sense for our relationships with our artists and our supporting, um, our supporters, which yeah, yeah, are, yeah. can be collectors, can be curators, can be museum directors. Yeah. But also, because they had been here for a couple of years, they realized their thinking had changed, their lives had changed. And they come from the country. They come not from Zurich, but they come from the area of St. Gallen. Mm. So they're used to being out in nature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they also know it changes your thinking process, how you relate to people. And as Dea just said, our deepest relationships are with our artists. We are nothing without them. Mm. And, and that includes our artist estates because we are responsible for the legacy of these extraordinary artists mm. from the 20th, 21st century. We talked about Gustin earlier on. We talked about Gustin. Yeah. And today, as um, after this, the Gorky family are down. So these are the grandchildren of Arsal Gorky, mm. who you guys will meet. I'm yeah, so excited. Uh, and they're also the grandchildren of Sir Stephen yeah. Spender. It's quite an extraordinary family. Um, and then Philida Barlow is coming down. Yeah. You know, it's it's just this wonderful celebration as much as we can. And this is why this last year has been hugely difficult for us because those running into our artist, having a lunch with an artist, the dinners, that's all kind of disappeared. Yes. So just this reopening has been so nurturing. Yes. And to bring them here, you know, Thanks to BMW. To bring, it, bring it, well, it's BMW, a, but it's, to bring everyone here. But you it's an experience, saying, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But this space. So this this farm was derelict for several decades. Several decades. And this is quite a close community. It feels like in Bruton, and everybody knows everyone. So what was the kind of pressures that came on Housingworth on Ivan when they found this space and decided to develop it and refurbish it and make it into an art gallery? Well, I think it. One of the crucial decisions was bringing their very close collaborator Louis Laplace on board. Luis has worked very closely with the family for many, many years. Mm -hmm. In fact, the upcoming Menorca project is their 17th project together. Wow. So they trust and know each other deeply. And, And it's something about inviting Luis here to spend a lot of time talking, talking, talking together. And they've always wanted to have a restaurant. Luis's owned restaurants, worked in restaurants before. And they pulled all these talents together yeah. over a considerable period of time, like 
every day talking, talking, what will this be? How will it change? Who will come and work with us? And they found miraculously this remarkable, the senior director of um, Housing for Somerset, Alice Workman, who grew up only 40 minutes away. Right. And Alice has been pivotal to what we experience today. She's the conduit for the community. Exactly. You can't just bring people from yeah. outside. You need, and, and we needed the local support to make mm. this successful. And it's, it is absolutely intuitive to the thinking that if you don't have the locals feeling welcome here, this would have died a long death. Mm. And, and we're kind of creating this model elsewhere. Mm. Um, when we went, we have our place in LA, and it's in a, well, before we moved in, it was a pretty tough neighborhood. But again, using this model, mm. making the, helping the neighbors feel we're a part of your community, we're going to work with you. Mm. Everyone's invited, it's inclusive nature. It's really worked. But they seem to feel really proud of it, that it's part, it's theirs. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And like Bruton's yours and your Bruton's. It's like a really uh, synonymous thing now. You link House and Worth with Bruton and vice versa. Yeah. And actually the place where we, we've been staying um, is a House and Worth kind of uh, almost like a hotel, a, a kind of place where we got to stay. And um, I heard that you actually had like an open door there where people could just like drop in and... and, and um... So yeah, so actually one of the first things that Alice um, did is... Um, I, one thing I should actually mention as well is that Alice has a history working in both a commercial gallery and a public gallery. So mm. it's kind of the knowledge of the two bringing it together and really understanding so good, yeah. how, to, how to merge those two things together. Um, and part of the kind of, I guess, the public consultation side, um, you know, she had an office um, on the high street open door coffee pot running and anyone of the local community that want to come in and share their thoughts or ideas or desires of what they'd want out of a you know a, a creative space yeah. um we're able to do that and i think you know it was through various initiatives like that and also the you know education program starting even before we opened that really sort of um gained the support and trust of the local community was there some anger though was there some like what are you doing why are you building a gallery here I don't believe there was any there, any anger or anything, but there was definitely sort of people who had questions. Yeah. But I think, you know, all those sort of questions or concerns fell away really quickly when they understood, you know, what, what we were doing One was asset. incredibly ge- genuine. It makes me think of when we went to an uh, interview at the Turner Contemporary. Totally. In Margate. And yeah, how that, with Victoria bringing that Pomery. Into, bring, Victoria Pomery, bringing that into the community and the community being like, well, hang on a minute, why do we need an art gallery? Yeah. And, and now what that's brought to the town. And that was slightly different in the sense that, like, people were worried about the hospital and they were worried about the schools so they didn't understand why all this money was going to a gallery because to them they were like we need help in other places but actually that money was ring fenced you know from the national lottery and other places just to go to an art place so in a way it couldn't have gone anywhere else and i think it was about getting that message across of the intention behind it all and now look what's happened to margate and i with the community totally making sure that you don't shut them out and you know exactly it's about bringing people in about yeah. making it part what, of the land what i think is interesting about hauser is it's a very generous thing in a way yeah. to do this space because it is so public facing mm-hmm. and it is almost like a public institution in many ways like it, it brings a lot of the education you know a lot of the 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 it's free entry all of these things and i think it's more institutions like sorry more businesses should try and do things like this if they can afford to because it's giving back, actually. And it's also sharing the message of art, which at 
the end of the day, of course, we all, as gallerists, you know, think about sales. We think about keeping the artist studios running. But actually, we need the message of the art to reach people and to get to as big as audience as possible. You so, schools, local schools. They absolutely. Schools. Yeah. And, and one of the things is we all know, like, you've been interested in art for many, many years, as have you, Rob. It has to start somewhere. And also, I think we're all fearful about budget cuts in the arts, that where do these kids begin their engagement? Where does it become easy? And especially if you have to face admission fees, and we were talking about that last night, that thankfully in London, there's so many free museums, Mm -hmm. but you have to have the encouragement to go inside it. Mm -hmm. So here, they're learning the fundamentals, and you just met the head of education, Debbie Hilliard. My God, what we do, I mean, like, we can't bring as many groups right now because of COVID, mm. but it's just teeming with children. Like, so fundamentally, we are developing the next generation of art engaged, and they can be collectors, they can be artists, they can be artist administrators. We're helping develop that, but in a genuine way. So they start off with a really balanced education on what art is versus walking into like being a specialist in an auction house. Sorry, I don't mean to no, put no, that no. down, but it's a, it's it's a, a visual, very specific... It's a visual education. Yeah, I remember it's... my first experience is having an onslaught of the imagery about how that would filter through and come out creatively, creatively in myself. Yeah. And if you think about sort of, you know, the children in rural sort of England, you know, the opportunities for them to engage with, you know, international quality art is is very limited. An artists and, like Henry Taylor. Yeah. And and so, you know, one of the initiatives that we did very early on was um, create this group called Art House, which is mm-hmm. sort of for, you know, late teenagers to kind of come together. They're all self-directed. They work very close with Debbie. Um, and they, you know, they engage with the exhibitions. In the past, they've, you know, even created a painting with Martin Creed during his exhibition, which he ended up hanging in the in the show. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, and, you know, they've had trips to London to see the Tate Gallery and, you know, they're really learning in a, in a very incredible way. And, you know, Ange Smith, um, you know, they've done a painting workshop with her. So, you know, there's there's lots of access they this group gets. Yeah. So beside the art, people come into this space. As we p- pointed out earlier, there is a landscape garden at the back. Would you talk about that a bit? Because I feel like that is like nectar to bees, to people who love, <laughs> love gardens. They're like so, that is like an amazing. To me, again, it reflects you never have a singular visit here. So you can come often, but everything's changing. So nothing stays the same. So you're constantly being here fresh. Like when we were walking around yesterday and you're kind of pointing up to the past the garden, I thought, I can't believe it. Every time I'm still astounded to be here, and I can't count how many times I've been Mm -hmm. here. It's always a new experience. So it's not just the exhibitions changing. It's the garden changing. It's the menu changing. It's it's just little things happening, different people. It's a very alive space. It's a working farm as well, isn't it? It's a working farm. So we have real working farmers in, in access, but also the connection to the village. We've done our little walk to the village. It's just... It's a 10-minute walk. So we're very connected to that. Plus, we also have this um, design gallery in in the center of the village, which is where you stayed last night, called Make, which has local and internationally recognized ceramicist designers work inside. So, and and as we know, there's new restaurants popping up. It's just constantly in motion, but I think a very positive motion. 
And so you'll never understand it. You'll never know it. And that's exciting. Yeah. I, I really exciting. like the idea that it's a three and a half hour drive for me from Margate, for example, because we came in the car yesterday or for, for Russell BMW, yeah. from London <laughs> <laughs> with my lovely pillow yes. behind my head that helped yeah. me sleep a bit. Um, but um, what, what I like about it is when you get here, you can just walk. Like we, we haven't got, you know, a yeah, vehicle now. That's no. what I mean. And it's amazing. You can just walk through and it's it's so personal. And you do feel like you're sort of part of this country community. And, and, and it's such a breath of fresh air. The train station. It's just there. Yeah, totally. Like cute. this really was cute. really pivotal. Yeah. That you can come from London. You can come, you know, it's a little bit longer, but you can make it here and just walk to the gallery mm. and have a whole day in bliss. And that's the other thing when we were talking about time. You think like we know what it's like if we're in New York or London. Oh, we go see this show. We go see this show. You know, you see 20 things in one day. You didn't see anything. You come here and it's like, oh, yeah, we'll pop in and then we'll go someplace else. Six hours later, oh, did is the day gone? How yeah. did that happen? It's a cultural center parks. Apparently, center parks are really expensive now. There's they been are. a whole like scandal yeah. about it. But, um, but guys, hilarious. the thing is, I'm in London, so I do talk about it as a fan. Yeah. You know, I, this is, and when our team come yeah. down, we're just like, do we ever have to go back? Well, we so, said it was like a school trip. Yes, exactly. You get the coach and you come down and it's really exciting. So what's coming up here? Because um, this show runs till the 6th of June, Sunday the 6th of June. And then um, your next show opens on the 25th of June. Yes. And it'll be on all summer. Yeah. And can you speak a bit about that show? Of course. So um, sometimes we have two shows running concurrently. Um, so on sort of from 6 to 8 is kind of our reception day. Everyone welcome. You can, you know, book online. Um, but in the first three galleries, we'll have... Um, the estate of Eduardo Chilida. Wow. Yeah. Um, alongside about five outdoor sculptures dotted on the landscape, oh which will gosh. be absolutely incredible. Um, and that's a collaboration with um, the, obviously the estate and the Chilida Leku Museum in San Sebastian. So I just ask logistically, how do you, when, that, that beautiful landscape garden, these things obviously need cranes and trucks and everything because they're big bronze objects. How do you navigate the beautiful landscape without destroying it with like a tank to bring these in? Um, really long crane from the car park. Really? <laughs> really? Along the hedge edge, yeah. Wow. And, and And a bit of magic. Wow. And wizardry from, from the technical team, I must say. Right, okay, magic and wizardry. Yeah. Um, and then in the, in the fourth and fifth galleries, we'll have this um, incredible presentation of Gustav Metzger, um, which actually Aileen is working on um, with the foundation. Icon. Love Metzger. Yeah. Wow. So it's, but it's happening it's here. It's happening here. It's all happening here, guys. <laughs> it, Where it's at. This is the centre of the, the world. Of and, these are, love. and the connection, there's two major post-war artists that will be showing here. This is amazing. Well, we're going to get into our final questions then. So you've both heard Talk Art before. We ask the same questions to every guest. And the first one is, if you could both do an art heist, Daya Eileen, oh. if you could have any work of art to yourself, and you, you're sat... With a massive, like a bookshelf, books behind you. So you've got references. You've got the weight of art history surrounding it. One work of art that you could steal and live with happily. uh, What would it be and why? I actually know. I was just thinking the work that I want to find and to see again is the Vermeer that was stolen from the Isabel Stork Gardner Museum. Oh, wow. I want that found and put back in its place. Yeah. There's a documentary about that, isn't there? There is. Yeah, yeah it, it's absolutely, but it's something that meant so much to me. I was a huge Isabel Stork Gardner Museum <gasps> person, like in the, when I was 
in college and I go as often as I could you saw that and I remember this painting in my heart and it was I was in Dublin when I first read in the New York Times that this this heist had happened and it just broke my heart so I want that mirror found I love that the last amount of the frames that like the the canvas it's just the picture it just makes none of it made sense (laughs) so awful I want that I love that your art heist is to sort of fix an actual art yeah, heist. You guys can do anything. <laughs> yeah, it's yes, correcting. That's what I want. You, you can do anything. What about for yourself that's then? What, what would you have for yourself at home? That's lovely you're giving that back. I don't know yet. I'll go, we're going to have to go to Daya because I just could figure that one out. Um, oh, gosh. I mean, I, I was toying with sort of two, which are really, really random. We'll get you Considering I've, I've ended up in, in the contemporary art world, but probably the first one would be um, Caravaggio's um, Judith Beheading oh, uh, Hall of Furnace, wow. which is a painting that I saw and was absolutely captivated by. And, and, you know, the strong woman in the character, just how, like, the drama. I mean, the Baroque period was actually my first love in art. Mm-hmm. Um and I actually almost thought I was going to kind of go into that area, but ended up in contemporary, which, you know, I think the kind of the love, the fascination, the knowledge of the Baroque period has kind of fed, mm. you know, what I find interesting and captivating within, you know, within contemporary art. So definitely, definitely um, that piece. And the one other one, which is really random, I don't know if anyone will know, um, but in the National Gallery, there's a piece called the Wilton Diptych, um, which is this sort of illuminated wooden kind of, um, travel like it basically kind of folds together it's and, extraordinary yeah yeah my friend Catalina took me to see it if she's listening she'll remember but we went to see it and it is one of the most beautiful is it works of art it's basically sort of this um you know historically it, it was kind of this wooden kind of two-paneled object that would um kind of fold together like a book and you'd carry it around and the patron would sort of carry it around and inside there was sort of sort of angels and god and the patron sort of um kind of pictured within it and it's it's illuminated with sort of gold leaf it's very much kind of you know the the flat think about kind of you know the flat side profile images of people with kind of halos that look more like plates behind their heads um but I was just it was one of the first pieces I remember seeing the first time I went to the National Gallery when I was about I think 13 Mm. visiting the UK from Canada and I was I was just like I just want to be around these objects understand their stories and the people that made them possible and the artists that that touch, you know, touch those works. Does being around art make you want to be a collector or does it have the opposite effect? I mean, for the longest time, I think my walls were completely empty at home because I just, you know, obviously couldn't couldn't afford um, the art. But, um, but I, I feel so privileged to be able to, you know, have a lot of conversations and access to speaking with artists, to seeing works, to going to their studios, seeing how it develops. So, and also, you know, the incredible public collections. I don't feel I personally need to own these works. I think, you know, as long as we have access to them and be able to see them and collectors are willing to loan their works to museums and share, I think, you know, there's no need for that ownership. You have art up on the wall now, though. You have something on the wall in your house. I do, yeah, yeah. What have you got up? Oh, it's all very modest. Is it? <laughs> Main, mainly sort of, you know, gifts and things from, from artists. But, um, but yeah, you know, I've, I've got, a, a, you know, one of the charity prints that Jenny Holzer um, made last year, which says we are all delicately interconnected, um, which is oh, sort I know of that that, one. I love that one. Yeah, yeah. absolutely fantastic. Um, and a Matthew Day Jackson work. And, yeah. So are cool. you a collector? I, again, similar to Daya, I've had very long relationships with artists and uh, and I've acquired modestly, but a lot of them are gifts. And so they're emotional pieces. They're not things I would 
ever think of parting with. Mm-hmm. It's like a story. It's it's my relationship. It also shows how I've developed as a person. Mm-hmm. And I think I think this is kind of where this relationship with art and acquisition, it's really about you. It's not about what everybody else is doing because it's not really that important. It's really about you and your communication, how you reflect and see yourself. Yeah, you know, I always I, it's a self-portrait. Yeah. It's also, it's a diary of your life. I look exactly. around and go, oh, that's when I did that play. That's when I did that TV show. I was able to buy that. That's why I was in that country. Yeah. I did a studio visit then and I got that drawing. It's amazing. So I think where I'm always surprised by... Um, I love when collectors really invest in the relationship and the time and the study and the research because they're investing, obviously they're parting with money, but they're really giving their time. And I think that's when you start communicating with your family, your friends, your, your um, particularly your children. Because I think maybe if you've grown up in a house with um, communication on the arts, it always filters through. And I always remember the paintings in my home. They, mm. they were my family. Mm. Like I saw them very differently than I would ever see in another space. And I remember every detail about them. So, and I always remember the stories my family told me about them. So it's me, you know? Mm. So that's why it's, um, it, it's, it's art, it's your relationship with it. And I think we all have different relationships with it, but the access to art is fundamental to us as human beings. It's mm. absolutely essential. Mm. And what you do with that is up to you. But yes, participating in art, supporting artists is super important. Mm. And, and, but being responsible for it, do it as well. That's super, like that's essential because um, you, you're entrusting people with an artist's life, essentially. Mm. I think it's fundamental and that's what we it's a big part of our job in our gallery mm. is to keep protecting our artists mm. and nurturing the relationships conservation sustainability and education love that ross so the last question we ask every guest is what is your favorite color oh well, mine would have to be electric blue electric blue get you day <laughs> It might be mine, yeah. um, and it might have been named after David Bowie, um, but, you know. I'll well, you've got kind of lightning oh. bolts in your ear- earrings today. Is that like a Ziggy thing as well? We love Bowie. Absolutely. You're a Bowie fan. <laughs> I'm a Bowie fan. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, I, I have to admit, I listened to your Glenn Ligon, which I loved, and I thought when he said the blue, the color blue he was mentioning, I'm like, oh, my God, that's my color. And I thought, and I'm going to iterate, it's the Glenn Ligon blue is the color is my favorite color. I know that's pretty it's a blue redundant. Blue is almost black. Exactly. Yes. The blue black. It's just so like oh, it's just that moment. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm that's my favorite. Love that. Well, what an adventure this has been. Thank you so much for having us here and thank you BMW who are celebrating 50 years of cultural engagement. They have a passion for creativity which is a key to their company and their designers. So thank you BMW for bringing us down here. And also everyone listening, there is so much to look forward to this summer. Like if you can't fly away and go on holiday, you can have a a short break in the UK. So visit Somerset, you know, get out there, see different museums around the country, but do come and see this Henry Taylor show if you can do 
that before the 6th of June. Otherwise, head online and you can see all the amazing documentation because they have made extraordinary films of it. Um, and that will last forever. So it's an, an ex right. exhibition that will be forever. But also, go, if you're in America, you'll be able to see this ex uh, brilliant um, exhibition by Henry Taylor at um, MoCA Los Angeles and the accompanying book that they're making, which I hear is going to be an extraordinary overview of a lot, lot of his work, which is very exciting. And then BMW themselves are going to be at Freeze London in October and they have some very exciting secrets. They're going to be staging um, a collaboration with Freeze. They do um, BMW open work, um, which draws on topics of sustainability and um, also Freeze music and there's loads of other things, but they're going to be doing um, an amazing Wayne McGregor collaboration as well um, with Random International who did that amazing rain piece at the Barbican. I don't you remember it. So there's going to be all these opportunities to, to um, experience art supported by the wonderful philanthropists that are BMW. To stay informed about all these exciting projects, you can visit on Instagram at BMW Group Culture. And what's Hauser & Worth's Instagram? Is it at Hauserworth? Yes, Hauserworth. And then also Hauser & Worth Somerset have our own Instagram, which is at Hauserworth Somerset. Amazing. Okay, great. And Henry Taylor is at Chinatown Taylor. Yeah, and you can find images of everything we spoke about on our Instagram at TalkArt. So thank you so much, Hazard and Worth. Thank you so much, BMW. Thank this has you, been Aileen. the thank dream art adventure. And it, it was all the more special because we've yeah. been lo in lockdown for so long. And just getting out there and seeing art in museums, in galleries it's, again. It's in the UK. If you're in the UK, it's on your doorstep. Well, it's a few hours away, but it, you can get here. And we also have some signed talk art books in our bookshop. Oh, yes. Thank we did a signing yesterday. Oh, yeah. So we're now Sunday Times bestsellers. Thank you, everyone. Are we? Yes, we are. We haven't, um, we haven't told anyone. And, we, <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, and thank you so much. And we'll be back very soon. We're off to have a really nice lunch now at the Roth um, restaurant. Yes. So we're going to meet Phila DiBarlo, one of my heroes again. Um, lots of love, everyone. We'll be back very soon. Bye. 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 You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening.